So we're going to have session two now, and session two tonight is called Is There Anything We Can Trust? And uh, I suppose we've, uh, we don't even read newspapers too much anymore, and people used to say you can't believe what you read in the newspaper, and uh, we've sort of learned over time, I guess, that even news corporations and news agencies sometimes have an agenda. They have a bank balance or a bottom line that they need to uh, meet. And so we sort of uh, started to lose confidence in uh, some of the reporting that goes on. Um, did you know that uh, the Oxford uh, English Dictionary, they have a word of the year every year? I didn't know this for a while, but apparently the Oxford English Dictionary, they have a word of the year. And the word of the year for 2016 was post-truth. In other words, uh, they, uh, 2016 was a, a, a year where the word post-truth was used a lot and it was the idea that we're moving into an era of post-truth. In other words, uh, you know, you have what you think is right and I have what I think is right, but there's, there's no absolute truth. It's kind of a post-truth environment where it's, truth is hard to find. You'll claim one thing, somebody else claims another, and we've seen this a lot, of course, in politics with you know, accusations of fake news. And uh, you ever, you ever uh, fallen for one of those uh, headlines where you've got this you know, sensational headline, you click on it, and it's actually not really that at all? Um, I'm sure that's happened to you. And, of course, uh, where do we go to find reliable counsel? How do we know what is true and what is not? Um, you know, social media is... Uh, it's like saturation coverage for, for most of us. Um, you know, is, is everything we need to be found on Google? Maybe. During the uh, election campaign of 2016, the ABC asked a question talking about the two leaders, of course, Turnbull and, and Shorten, who are still the Prime Minister and the opposition leader now. How can the people of Australia trust either of you, it says, having ousted sitting leaders of their own parties Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten needed to fend off past demons in the first major televised debate of the election campaign, trying to get people to trust them, trying to win their trust so that they will gain their vote. Even sometimes when it comes to um, popular uh, sporting or media personalities, I used to use Lance, Fran uh, Lance Armstrong as a... Um, kind of paragon of virtue and a, a, a great story of somebody coming back from adversity to, to conquer at all costs, you know, and to, to overcome great adversity. And then, of course, it was revealed that having won seven Tour de France titles, he was stripped of those titles because it was found that he had been using um, performance-enhancing substances. And so I use that one example, but there have been many where people who you've sort of thought, oh, yeah, this is this is a nice guy, or he's a true and trustworthy person, or she's a true and trustworthy person, and then you have the rug pulled from under you because you define, you know, you'd find out a whole bunch of things you didn't know before. Well, I put some people on the screen here, and um, maybe you will recognise these people. Who's this one here? Premier. Yeah, Premier. That's the, is that easier to say than her name? Gladys Berejiklian, right? So that's the Premier of New South Wales. Then, of course, we've got Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Next to him, you've got Theresa May, who's the British Prime Minister. Then you've got, well, you shouldn't have too many difficulty recognising that one. It's on all the coins, right? And she's been around a while. Queen Elizabeth II. Then, of course, there's Donald. And then, do you know the gentleman over here? Right, Peter Cosgrove. What's his role? Governor General. Governor General, right. So there on the screen, and this is just uh, an, a sampling, but you have our State Premier, our Prime Minister, the Governor-General and the Queen, four of our levels of leadership in this country, and then you have, obviously, uh, the British Prime Minister and the American President. All of these people have something in common. And yes, they're all leaders, and yes, they all have some bearing on politics, but they have something else in uh, common. I wonder if you know what that is. They were all sworn into office by placing their hand on the Bible. And I raise that because 
Still today, the vast majority of the people who lead our country, who serve as leaders in our country, the vast majority of them are sworn into their role by placing their hand on the Bible. And, you know, it begs the question, why the Bible? Why not the dictionary? Or the phone book? I mean, at least with the phone book, you're placing your hand on the people you represent, right? (laughs) Why the Bible? And, of course, it will be said, and with some validity, that, well, that's traditional. Yes, it is, but why is it traditional? It is because the Bible claims to be the greatest authority in terms of the Bible claiming to be the word of God. It has been regarded as the greatest authority in the Western world. And that's why people are sworn into office uh, by placing their hand on the Bible. A few years ago, I needed something signed, uh, endorsed by a JP. And I went to see them and I said to them, how do you become a JP anyway? And they say, oh, you have to go through all these interviews and tests and you sit exams and then you put your hand on the top of a pile of Bibles and swear to do the right thing. And so the Bible is actually used in our legal system still today, probably more than we anticipate. There was a news story a few years ago in Victoria where police officers had not been following the proper procedure of swearing in affidavits based on the Bible, believe it or not. And all of these affidavits that had been sworn were being called into question because the law says you have to swear them in on the Bible. So the Bible has this role that is played in society and we want to investigate and understand why that is. Does the Bible still hold authority today? Is there anything we can trust? We're going to talk about can we trust the Bible because we want to know whether that is still a valid proposition. The Bible, of course, was the first book ever printed on a printing press around 1450. The Gutenberg uh, Bible was the first book printed on a printing press. And um, you know when you come to the end of uh, a decade or whatever, you look back over the last 10 years or when you come to the end of, well, when we came to the end of the year 1999 and we were looking back on a millennium of history, they were asking themselves, People were asking, what is the most significant event of the last 1,000 years? And what they chose was the printing of the Gutenberg Bible. was the most significant event, they said, of the last 1,000 years. And uh, I I guess there's a couple of reasons for that. The, The technological advances of being able to print and be able to mass distribute books and literature. But I also think the fact that it was the Bible that was printed that that had an enormous effect on the society, uh, particularly in Western Europe and the societies that have spread out from Western Europe since. You know, when we think about the Bible, there are so many phrases in the Bible that we use, and when I say we, I'm talking about people who live in secular Australia, that we use all the time, but we may not realise that they're derived from the the, the English-speaking Bible. Um, So things like money is the root of all evil, weak as water, go the extra mile, doubting Thomas. I heard today a deputy prime minister when he resigned, they said he's fallen on his sword. That's a biblical reference. That's a biblical uh, idea. Um, Two-edged sword, a man after his own heart, the powers that be, a stone thrown, you can read them. The writings on the wall. I remember uh, watching... um, an NRL grand final, it was probably about 2006 I think it was, and the Melbourne Storm were playing against something else, somebody else, and I can't remember who it was, but Melbourne Storm were losing, and the, the commentator was just commentating on the game, there was about five minutes to go, and they say, look at Craig Bellamy's face, he knows the writing's on the wall. Right, and that's a phrase taken from a biblical story. You know, how, many, how often do we refer to sporting contests between David and Goliath? You know, we use this kind of language, it's derived from the Bible, but many of us are unaware of the fact, but that's how great an impact that book has had on English-speaking peoples of the world. So let's address some of the claims of the Bible. None of these things, the fact that it's popular or it's been used in uh, swearing in leaders and so forth, none of those things prove that the Bible is authoritative. 
One of the things we want to look at is the claims of the Bible. One of the things that the Bible claims is that it is inspired by God. Obviously, the Bible was written by human beings. You may or may not know that. But the Bible was written by human beings. However, those human beings claimed that the information they wrote was given to them by God. So, for instance, in the New Testament, the Bible will say this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, what that means is it's God breathed. God was the source of scripture according to the claim. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness and so forth. There's another one in the New Testament. It says, knowing this further, there's no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The claim of the Bible is that it is not of earthly origin. It is of divine origin. That's the claim of the Bible. Now, of course, the claim in and of itself doesn't make it so. Right? However, when you consider how many books in the history of the world have made that claim, very few really, only a handful of books make the claim that this is actually from God, right? Most books, the author is happy to claim credit, right? This is my ideas, I'm writing this book, might be fact or fiction, whatever, but the author's happy to claim credit. But this book is claiming to be of divine origin. And it's not the only book that claims that, but there is a very small collection, really, of books that claim that in the world. And the Bible makes such a claim. We want to be able to test that claim, though. One of the evidences for the uh, reliability of the Bible, or perhaps rather not the reliability of the Bible, one of the evidences for its divine authorship is something called internal consistency. What do we mean by that? Well, the Bible was written by over 35 different people. Okay, It's more like a collection of books than a, a single volume. It is like a library in itself. But it's written by over 35 authors from many different backgrounds. So you have shepherds writing there. You have fishermen writing there. You have kings and nobles who were writing there. And... Uh, so you have people from very different backgrounds. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. So the, you know, the first book, Genesis, was written a long, long, long time before the last book, Revelation. So it's written over a very long period of time by these 35-plus different authors. It was written on three different continents. Europe, Asia, Africa. In three different languages. Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. And yet, it has one unified message about the identity of God, about creation, about mankind, about salvation, justice, heaven, death, and a whole host of other subjects. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to get 35 people in a room that agreed with each other, right? But here you have more than 35 people writing over this vast period of time claiming that their inspiration is coming from above and you have this internal consistency. And that is the hallmarks of some overriding author. You know, how is it that somebody who writes in Genesis, his material is referred to in the book of Revelation and it's consistent? Well, why is it consistent? They say it's because there's a consistent God who inspired the, the writings. If that's not the case, who was the overarching author of the Bible, if not God, over a 1,500-year span? So internal consistency of the Bible is strong evidence for this divine inspiration. We could think about the Bible's broad appeal too. The Bible is read by young people and old people. Right? It has always been the case. It has been read by people from different eras. So it's not that, well, people read the Bible back in the 1500s, but nobody reads the Bible anymore. No, there are still people reading the Bible today, young and old. And, of course, it's read, sorry, it is read by people from vastly different cultures. So you can go to little villages in Africa and you'll find people who read the Bible. Or you could go to Manhattan 
in the USA, and you'll find people who read the Bible. You can find people even in War's End that read the Bible, right? So it's an interesting book. When you consider the fact that it's 2,000 years old, the last part of it, and 3,500 years old, the first part of it, how is it that such a book still has appeal to people who live in the 21st century? That's remarkable. Talk about a bestseller. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Uh, the Guinness World Guinness Book of Records says that uh, the Bible has been distributed. I think they've had there's been more than five billion copies distributed at least, and it regards it as the best-selling book of all time. Well, in terms of its contents, how can we measure whether the Bible is actually reliable or not? The Bible essentially is a history book. Now, it's a whole lot more than that. It contains so many things. It contains uh, narrative, it contains poetry, it contains prophecy, it contains a whole host of things, and it also contains a lot of history. And it claims to be the history of God and his interactions at certain times in history with people. And so there is actually archaeological evidence that we can examine in the here and now as to whether or not the Bible is reliable because the Bible stories are written about real people who lived in real places who had encounters with God. And we can test whether those places really exist. I've visited many of them. You know, if you go down to Egypt, Egypt has an interesting history with the Bible because it's mentioned many, many times. You'll find, uh, the, you'll find Egypt in the book of Re uh, Genesis and you'll find Egypt in the book of Revelation and a whole host of places in between. But uh, you go to Egypt, and I've been there a couple of times, and you've got massive monuments there covered in uh, hieroglyphs that for centuries nobody had an idea what they were, what they said. They were obviously ancient writings, but they didn't know what they said. They had fallen out of use. And uh, I think... It was the 4th century, 5th century AD when the last hieroglyph was actually written down. They stopped using the hieroglyphs. And uh, then, until the, the late 1700s, <coughs> excuse me, they were unknown. People didn't know what the hieroglyphs meant. People would go to Egypt, they'd see these massive monuments, didn't know what the, the writing on the wall said. And uh, until they discovered a stone, a big black basalt stone called the Rosetta Stone. It's in the British Museum. And on that stone, you had a message that was in three different languages. And a man by Jean, called Jean-Francois Champollion, who was a Frenchman, he believed that if he could translate, if he could uh, translate or read one part of the stone, he would be able to translate the other part of the stone. And he could read ancient Greek. And this stone had uh, three different languages. It had the hieroglyphs, ancient Greek, and another kind of Egyptian script. And he thought, if I can work out what the hieroglyphs are, I'll be able to start deciphering. And he deciphered it in 1822. And when they were able to do that, then the land of Egypt came alive with all these stories that were written on the walls that they couldn't read before. And they would read about stories of the Egyptians going into battle with a people called the Hittites. And the reason that that was important was at the, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, it became very popular to have a higher critical view of the Bible. In other words, people would say, well, how do we know we can trust the Bible? You know, there's these miracles in the Bible. You can't reproduce miracles in a laboratory. How do we know those miracles actually happened? Maybe they're just stories. And they decided in this higher critical view of the Bible, which became fashionable, that if you could not prove it, then it had to be put in the sceptical basket. In other words, we're doubting the reliability of the biblical record unless you can prove it. And they would read about a group of people called the Hittites that appear, I think, about 30-odd times in the Bible. And they said, we have no evidence for a people called the Hittites. Never heard of them before. So maybe that's just written in there. It's just a story in the Bible. Until they discovered these hieroglyphs that talked about the battles that the Egyptians would fight with the Hittites. 
And since then, of course, they've found many uh, ruins of the Hittite uh, empire. Uh, this is Hattusa in Turkey. And uh, it went from being uh, a legend, something that was not believed to be true, to now that place is a World Heritage Site. Okay, so it moved out of the pages of legend and into the pages of history due to archaeological discovery. Another one was uh, the character in the Bible called Abraham. Skeptics said, well, Abraham, we don't have any evidence of Abraham. We've never heard of Ur of the Chaldees, so maybe Abraham's a fictitious character. But then they made some discoveries and they found Ur of the Chaldees. And they discovered Ur of the Chaldees and say, well, if Ur of the Chaldees really existed, then maybe the character Abraham really existed. And uh, you can see here, this is during the Gulf War, you've got American troops climbing up a reconstructed ziggurat in Ur of the Chaldees, in the place where Abraham is meant to have come, to, come from, according to Genesis chapter 12. Another example of this is... Um, in the Bible, we just spoke about that story, the writings on the wall, comes from a biblical story. It, the Bible describes the last night of Babylon, or at least the last night of the Babylonian Empire, when it fell to the kingdom that came after it, which was the Medes and the Persians. And the king, the last king listed in the Bible, is a king called Belshazzar. Higher critics of the Bible said, well, we know that's wrong, because we have lists of the Babylonian kings from other records and Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. That's the last one listed. So the Bible must be wrong. And then they discovered a little cylinder which is now called the Nabonidus cylinder and it's actually only very small. You can go to the British Museum, it's about that big, that long. It's not very big. But on it, Nabonidus had inscribed a message to his son, Belshazzar. And what we now have found, we found that name other places as well. And what we now know is that Nab uh, Nabonidus was away from Babylon. His son Belshazzar was reigning in his stead the night Babylon fell. And it demonstrated that the Bible was actually reliable. The Bible got it right. And so time and time again, skeptics of the Bible, higher critics of the Bible, have sought to demonstrate that it's not reliable. Uh, as recently as 1993, in fact in 1992, a, an archaeological scholar had written, there's never been that found any evidence of the literal David. You remember David and Goliath? He became king, David became king of Israel. And they said, we've never found any archaeological evidence of David. David must be a made-up character. It's one of those stories that the Jewish people have put into the Bible to establish their history. And then in 1993, they found in Dan, a Tel Dan stele, where stele is like a, a slab of stone, but it had an inscription on it, which included the phrase, the house of David, which you find in the Bible. And so, once again, archaeological evidence had served to uh, establish the reliability of the Bible. We could talk about the New Testament in Caesarea, which is on the coast of Israel. They found a slab of stone with Pontius Pilate's name carved into it. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea at the time of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that later. The one in the picture here is actually a replica that you can see in Caesarea today because the original, they deem is too precious and they've taken it to the uh, Jewish Museum, the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. Recently, a, uh, a DVD was released a couple of years ago called Patterns of Evidence, talking about archaeological evidence for the Exodus. And I thoroughly recommend that DVD to you because um, there's a lot of the chronology of the ancient world that is under some dispute because the, the, the dates that are given in the Bible and the dates in some other chronological methods of dating don't add up. And this uh, DVD addresses some of that and I recommend it to you. Patterns of evidence, the Exodus. Well, what about if there is evidence to support the reliable history of the Bible, what about the manuscripts themselves upon which the Bible is written? Um, they're very old. Uh, how do we know that we can rely upon them? Right? I mean, they're pieces of paper. In fact, uh, up until the uh, mid 
20th century, the earliest manuscripts we had for the Old Testament were dated to about 900 AD. And the Old Testament was completed around 400 BC, right? So you have a 1,300-year gap between what was last written and what we have a copy of. And people would say, well, in that period of time, surely there would have been some mistakes made in copying it, even if they were you know, very fastidious, uh, that mistakes would have been made, it could have been changed. We don't know whether it's the same document or not. That's what the sceptics would claim. Until the mid-20th century, when a discovery was made that we now know and call the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the mid-20th century. 1947, Mohammed el-Dahib, he was a, uh, an Arab goat herder and uh, he was around this area with his goats and one of his goats wandered into a cave and he was trying to get his goat out so he's throwing stones into the cave trying to get his goat to scamper out and he threw a stone into one of these caves and he heard the sound of shattered pottery and he thought, oh, could be treasure, right? Could be amazing treasure. So he scampered up, found the cave that he'd thrown the stone into and here were these broken pots that just had scrolls in them. And he was very disappointed because he was looking for treasure. He did not realise that he had stumbled upon what the Israeli nation today considers its greatest treasure, which were copies of the ancient Hebrew Bible. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found, when they first discovered them, uh, I think he sold them to somebody for a, you know, a few, few dollars. That person sold them on for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Some of them, I think, got thrown in the fire because they had no idea the value of these documents. But eventually they were recovered and I think there were um, many, many caves that they found, different fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Discovered in 1947, all they, they found copies or parts of copies of every Old Testament book except the book of Esther. They also found biblical commentaries of Old Testament books as well as psalms and hymns. And they also found sectarian material that belonged to the Qumran community itself. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's no mention of Jesus, Paul or John. Some people make speculations about what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the reasons there'd be no mention of Paul, Jesus or John is they were written before the time of Paul, Jesus and John. They discovered that the Dead Sea Scrolls were in fact dated to 100 to 200 BC. So in other words, this had shifted back the earliest date of the earliest manuscripts for the Old Testament by a thousand years. What that meant was they could compare what they had with what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is some of the excavated community of Qumran. They would uh, have ritual baths. There was a, a bath they've excavated there where the people who wrote the scrolls, they would have these baths and they would wash before they would write out the scriptures. You know when you get a letter, if you've read it time and time and time again, you want to make a copy of it because it's getting tatty. Well, that's what they would do with the scriptures. But when they were writing out the scriptures, they were very meticulous to make sure that what was on the original was going to be reproduced on the new copy. And they would even take a bath before they would do it. And uh, this is the scribe's room. This is the room they believe that the uh, scrolls were actually written out in, in this Qumran community. Dr. Gleason Archer, commenting on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he talks about two copies here of the book of Isaiah. They were found in scrolls. He says, two copies of Isaiah found in the caves proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. Well, what about the other 5%? The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. So in other words, if I spell your name differently, you can still read the name and you still know it's the name. And so this is what was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Siegfried Horn was a famous archaeologist. He said the, the text, its text proves that since this copy was written, 
probably in the second century BC or in the first, the book of Isaiah is not, has not experienced any change. Everyone who's worked with this scroll has been profoundly impressed by the unmistakable fact that this 2,000-year-old Bible manuscript contains exactly the same text we possess today. In other words, by examining the copies, they know that it has been unchanged in terms of its essential message. I mentioned before Masoretic um, copying rules. The, the, the Bibles that people have today are based on an Old Testament text called the Masoretic text. And that text, they had copying rules for copying the Bible. They would count each letter on that document that they were the writing the new one. They count the letters on the old one and the letters on the new one. They would count each word. They would count to the middle word of a document and they would count to the middle letter of a document and compare it to the new one. If they made any mistakes, they would destroy it, take another bath and start again. They were that meticulous. And uh, so we can have confidence that the book that we hold in our hands is the same book that was written originally. Today, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, as I've said, the most valuable treasure of the Israeli people. It's kept in a museum called the Shrine of the Book. And uh, that is the best evidence we have for the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? The New Testament is really, it's the best attested to ancient document in existence, is the New Testament, right? And, you know, it's not just me saying it because I want people to believe the Bible. It's because there are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts in either Greek or other languages of the Bible, which means you have a vast collection of material, ancient material, that you can compare to determine what the original text was. I'll give you an example. Uh, Caesar wrote about his wars about 100 to 44 BC, Julius Caesar. The earliest manuscript that we have is about 900 AD. The time span between those two periods is about 1,000 years, and we have 10 manuscript copies. Okay? What I'm doing here is I'm comparing various ancient documents, because you've got to compare apples with apples, right? Plato, the works of Plato, written approximately then, the earliest manuscript, again, 900 AD, a 1,200 gap between what he wrote and what we have, the earliest of what we have, and there are about seven manuscript copies of that. But people don't doubt that that's what Plato wrote, even though we only have scraps, really. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He wrote about 100 AD, the uh, earliest manuscript we have is 1100 AD, a 1,000-year time span. We have eight manuscripts of that. Homer's Iliad, this is the real surprising one, Homer's Iliad, he wrote that about 900 BC. Our earliest manuscript is 400 BC. That's only a gap of 500 years. And we have 643 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad that we can compare, and people are satisfied that that's what he wrote. But with the New Testament, notice what we have. It was written between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest fragment that we have from the New Testament is dated to 125 AD. That's a gap of 25 to 50 years. And the number of manuscripts we have, ancient manuscripts, are 24,000. It like blows out of the water any other ancient manuscript. And, of course, the challenge for people is, well, yes, but it contains... Some amazing things. Some unbelievable things. And the doubt is based around what it contains rather than its authenticity based on its age and its verification from other manuscripts. But that's the testimony of those who wrote it down. And we'll talk about that a little more as we progress. Uh, I've been to Manchester uh, in, in the UK, the John Rylands Library, and this is the, the fragment of John's Gospel that is the oldest that we have. It's valued at 11 million pounds. But that's okay because I don't need that fragment. I've got a copy of my own. So I don't need to splash out 11 million to get hold of it. Uh, there, these are uh, some of the Chester Beatty papyri. Uh, I think uh, some of these are in the United States, some of them in Ireland. Uh, they're dated to the second, century, uh, second and third century manuscripts. Um, 
Sir Frederick Kenyon, he said this, he said, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in his hands the word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Evidence, historical evidence has borne out that what we have is what they wrote. And we can have confidence that we have what they wrote. If you want some extra reading on this subject, there is a couple of books that uh, I would recommend. F.F. Bruce, The Canon of Scripture, looks at the Old Testament. And then uh, same author, F.F. Bruce, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? It goes into the manuscript evidence and demonstrates the reliability of Scripture. Well worth having a look at. In the Bible itself, the Bible says this. It says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In other words, the Bible itself, and remember, this was written about seven, 800 years BC. That's quite a claim to make, that the word of God is going to last forever. But funnily enough, you and I have access to it today. We still have access to that book. How many ancient books have perished that we know nothing about? And this is an ancient book, and yet we still have copies of it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And even the Bible tells us that God would preserve his word. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation for how long? Forever. So the Bible itself, and that was written about 1,000 years ago, 1,000 years BC, that's 3,000 years ago, but it's, it's claiming that God will preserve his words. Now the thing for us is, if we go back to our previous presentation, either God exists or he doesn't. And if God really did exist, and if we really did want to communicate with humanity, don't you think he'd have a way of preserving that word? Doesn't that make sense? Like if God really existed. And let's suppose God didn't exist, but it's lasted this long anyway. What a coincidence, right? That it's actually lasted all these thousands of years for us to be able to read. And we say, well, there is no God, but it managed to be preserved anyway. Pretty remarkable. Well, that's the manuscript evidence. Um, Perhaps some of the most powerful evidence for the reliability of the Bible is prophetic evidence because the Bible claims to be able to predict the future or rather the Bible claims that God can predict the future. Uh, Notice what it says here in Isaiah 46, again, seven to 800 years BC, this was written. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God declares in the Bible that he is able to declare the end from the beginning. So at the beginning he can tell you what the end will be. Right? Prophecy in the Bible is one of those things that we can test and in fact we're going to unpack some of the prophecies in the Bible in this series. But it's a way that we can test the Bible. You know, many of ancient, the ancient religious writings don't include predictive prophecy. And there's a reason for that. Because in order for you to write down predictive prophecy and for it to come to pass, you'd have to know what's going to happen. Right? And the reason perhaps that many religious writings don't contain predictive prophecies because they don't know what's going to happen any more than you and I know. But the Bible claims that God knows what's going to happen and he's revealed that in his word. And there is a lot of, there are, it's estimated that about a third of the Bible is prophecy. There's a lot of prophecy in the Bible. I've had the opportunity to go to Egypt, as I mentioned before. And I want you to notice what the Bible says about Egypt in the book of Ezekiel. It says, thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noph, and that was Memphis. Memphis was the northern capital of the kingdom of Egypt for about 500 years. And the Egyptian people had been particularly cruel on many different peoples, and God says justice will fall one day. 
And he says he would destroy the idols and cause the images to cease. You could go to Memphis today, and I've been to the ruins of Memphis, not Memphis, Tennessee, the original Memphis in Egypt. And it is remarkable how little there is there considering it was supposed to be the capital of Egypt. And that's not just my words. Amelia Edwards, who's an Egyptologist, she wrote this. She says, where are the stately ruins, which even in the Middle Ages extended over the space of half a day's journey in each direction? One can hardly believe that a great city flourished on this spot or understand how it should have been effaced so completely. So here's an Egyptologist, not a religious person, just a person who's interested in the history of Egypt, she can't understand how this city has disappeared. Another passage in Ezekiel, he says this, There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. The land of Egypt, of course, was one of the great ancient civilizations for not only hundreds of years, but thousands of years. And you would think that having lasted thousands of years that it would just keep going on forever and ever and ever. But the people who rule Egypt today aren't related to the pharaohs. Right? Do you know who rules Egypt today? Any ideas? Arabs. It's an Arab nation. They're part of the Arab League. Okay, so you may remember uh, Egypt would be ruling for century after century. There'd be princes of Egypt, there'd be reigning pharaohs. But then uh, they were, they were um, over, overtaken by the Persians who ruled there for a while, but then they had a bit of independence again. But Alexander the Great came there and he set up a, a ruling kingdom in Egypt where they were ruled by the Greeks. You ever heard of Cleopatra? Was she Egyptian? She was Greek. She was a Ptolemaic queen. Ptolemy was one of those generals of Alexander that ruled in Egypt. And after the Greeks, of course, maybe you remember the story of Anthony and Cleopatra. After the Greeks came the Romans. And then after the Romans, the Arabs came. The British ruled in Egypt for a little while. I remember going to Egypt and uh, staying in a hotel. And they had those British plugs, you know, those chunky three-pin British plugs which would really surprise me, but that, that was an overhang, a leftover from the British rule uh, a few decades ago. But now, of course, Egypt is ruled by Arab nation. There are no longer princes from the land of Egypt. And the Bible predicted that that would be the case. You know, I mentioned before, Egypt has a lot of connections with the Bible. In the Bible, the earliest name for Egypt is Mitzrayim. It's in Genesis 10.6. And you go to Egypt today, they still call Egypt Misra. That's what they call Egypt in Egypt. They call it Misra. And it's taken from Mitzrayim. So you've got the Misra Bank, you've got the Misra Pharmacy, you've got the Misra Petrol Station, the Misra University, Misra Online and Misra Egyptian Airlines. So that's what the Egyptians call Egypt. They call it Misra. And that's what the earliest record of the Bible calls it too. In fact... Um, we won't go there. <laughs> Let's move on to Babylon. There's a lot of uh, references to Babylon in prophecy in the Bible. And uh, again, ancient Babylon was a marvellous, uh, majestic kind of um, kingdom, uh, kingdom of gold, and we'll talk more about that in one of our other presentations. I've been to um, the Berlin Museum. You can find the reconstructed Ishtar Gate from Babylon in the Berlin Museum. And uh, maybe you've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. And, uh, but the Bible had said at the time when Babylon was coming to power, the Bible said this, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited. That's a bold claim. It will never be inhabited, nor will be it settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. About 80k outside of Baghdad today, you could go to, on the banks of the Euphrates, is the ruins of Babylon. And uh, one time, 
Um, Saddam Hussein, ruler of Iraq, which is where these ruins are, he wanted to try and rebuild parts of Babylon. And you can find places where you've got the ruins of King Nebuchadnezzar back two and a half thousand years ago of his Babylon, and then you've also got some of the building work that Saddam Hussein undertook, tried to revive Babylon. But he failed in his project, and he obviously is no longer with us, so he won't be succeeding anytime soon. Nobody lives there. And the Bible foretold the fall of this ancient place. We could talk about Daniel chapter 2. We're going to actually refer to this uh, chapter in another presentation, so I hope you'll be able to make that. But I want to talk another prophetic evidence in the Bible about ancient Tyre. Tyre is on the Phoenician coast. It's uh, off the coast of Lebanon today. There was a, a city on the land and then there was also another part of the city that was on an island of Tyre in ancient times. And we read in Ezekiel 26, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you. Again, Tyre had been very cruel to many of its opponents and its uh, nations around it, and God says that judgment was going to come upon Tyre. It says, I will have many nations come against you as the sea causes its waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers, I will also scrape her dust from her, and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord, it shall become plunder for the nations. It says there, it'll become a place for spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. Usually you cast your nets in the midst of the sea to catch fish. They spread their nets out to dry them. But here it's saying they're going to spread their nets out in the midst of the sea. How are they going to get dry? Well, let's, let's read on what happens in history. In Ezekiel it goes on, it talks about the fact that nations would come against it. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against Tyre and he had a 13-year siege against the city of Tyre. Many of the people fled the city and, jumped and uh, went to the island of Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar was a land-driven army and he didn't have any boats. So he got to the shore sacked the city, but he couldn't get to the people who were on the island of Tyre. That was in 573 BC. And of course, time went by and maybe people thought, well, this prophecy is not going to be fulfilled. But much later, 332 BC, Alexander the Great came along. And again, the people fled to the island. And he didn't have any boats either. So what did he do? Well, he decided to collect all the rubble, all the debris from the city of Tyre on the land and put it in the water and build a causeway across to the island. Can you imagine being on that island and seeing the army putting more and more debris in the water and they're getting closer and closer and closer? And finally they reached the island of Tyre, and they overthrew it. Notice what the detail given in the book of Ezekiel, written hundreds of, uh, hundreds of years earlier. It says, They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls, destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, your soil in the midst of the water. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets and you shall never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. They never rebuilt old, the old city of Tyre. In fact, they can't find it. They don't know where it is. Because it says it would be made like the top of a rock. They took all the material and threw it into the sea in order to build this causeway. And Tyre was taken. You can go there today and check this out on Google Earth. And you can find that the island has now built up that that causeway got silted up and now it's become a peninsula. But it was an island until, Nebu uh, until Alexander the Great went there. And ironically, the fishermen there, they spread their nets out to dry them and it's in this area where it was once the sea but is no longer the sea because God knew what would happen. God wasn't guessing 
God knew what would happen to the nation of Tyre. Many attempts, I guess, have come and gone as to try to discredit the Bible. You may remember a book called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown a few years ago. Anybody read that book? Just me? (laughs) Um, Dan Brown released that book and in 2003 it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. um, 2004 it was number one and 2005 it was number two. It sold over 80 million copies worldwide. And of course it purports to tell this story a completely fictitious story about Jesus and what happened to him and so forth. During that period, there were very few books in the world that outsold Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. But one of them was the Bible. Now, if you're publishing a book that's undermining the credibility of the Bible, how is it that that book still outsells your book? Even though you're selling 80 million copies... And it is because the Bible has stood the test of time. It has become a book that has given people hope and encouragement and many, many other things. Mahatma Gandhi, he wrote about the Bible. Notice what he says here. He says, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world. But you read it as if it were good enough, as if it were just good literature and nothing else. This man was not a Christian, right? He's a Hindu, but he recognised the power of the book. I'm guessing he's read it. In the Bible itself, it says, "Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path." The world is getting very dark, and we need a lamp and we need a light in order for us to be able to make it through this world. The Bible offers you assurance, identity, confidence, forgiveness, hope, security, direction, knowledge of the future, freedom, contentment, self-worth, optimism, peace of mind, a blueprint for life, and a whole lot more. All I can say is, having read the Bible, I regard it to be the word of God to my soul. I have found it to be of enormous encouragement to me. I mentioned in the previous session that in 1966, Time magazine had on its cover, Is God Dead? Asking the question, is the idea of God dead? Fascinatingly enough, in 2017, they decided to reproduce the design, but they asked the question, is truth dead? Is truth dead? I believe, it's interesting that You look at those two titles and it's almost as if they equate God with truth. Is God dead? Is truth dead? I think the answer to both those questions is no. And I believe that it's still possible to find truth. If you went to the United States today and you went to Langley, Virginia, you went to the headquarters of the CIA and you walked in through the doors in the lobby Chiseled into the wall is a Bible verse, and this is it. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Bible claims to be the truth about God, and having read it, I testify that I found that to be the case.